Welcome to Sustainable Business Fridays. I'm your host, Katie Elman. Sustainable Business Fridays is the first podcast of its kind, bringing together students in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, not-for-profits, social entrepreneurship, and more. Twice monthly, these conversations go live via iTunes and Google Play. This week, I'm joined by my Bard MBA colleagues, Alex Fitzgerald, Jennifer Joseph, and Jennifer Shelbo. And we're speaking with Margot Baldwin, president and publisher at Chelsea Green Publishing. Hi, Margot. This is Alex. Thanks for joining us today. Okay, thanks. The company got started, I think it's almost 30, it's 33 years ago. So, um, and, and when we started it, we really didn't have this you know, idea that we were going to do a book, uh, a publishing company solely devoted to sustainability. When we started, we just wanted to be, to do good books, you know, broadly defined, and we were pretty eclectic. Um, But the realities of running a small publishing company and understanding that you need to be niched um, if you're going to survive sort of got us really focused on you know, the kind of books we wanted to do. And once we figured out that it was really going to be focused on the environment, sustainable living, and which included a lot of practical how-to books, um, our publishing program then just got a lot better defined. And, um, you know, we started to build up our what's called our backlist, which are books that continue to sell year after year. So, it wasn't an easy thing to do, and um, it took a long time to sort of become a stable company. Um, but I think in the end, uh, you know, we've built, we've built up something pretty substantial that has affected a lot of people. So we're, we're, we feel good about that. Hi, Margo. This is Jen Shelbo. And to um, delve a little bit deeper into that, um, you did mentioned that the books are focused on promoting sustainable living. And so uh, we were hoping that you could tell us a, some, a, a greater moment, um, a great moment or a highlight um, that, that has um, defined uh, Chelsea Green Publishing. Well, probably the most significant acquisition in our early days. Well, I, I'd have to start with The Man Who Planted Trees, which was the third book we ever published and is still in print today. And if I had to pick a book that kind of exemplifies our publishing program, um, that would be it. It's beautiful literature. It was written by a French writer who, um, I don't think he ever won the Nobel Prize, but he was in that league. Um, It's a... um, it's it's not a true story, but it's kind of truer than if it were a real story. So it's 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 uh, an eco fable. It's very inspiring. It's got beautiful illustrations by Michael McCurdy, who was a wood engraver. And I, you know, the whole package is perfect, and it's you know it's inspired countless numbers of people. So I would say. Starting with that book, which was in our first year, 
that kind of was the vision, even though we may not have known it at the time. Um, and then the second major development, I think, was um, signing up Elliot Coleman, who was, who is a classmate of my husband's from high school. And when we arrived up in Vermont from New York City, he was running the Mountain School uh, uh, farming program, and um, they got sort of reacquainted and reconnected and um, publishing his first book, New Organic Grower, which was way, way, way ahead of its time and is again, still in print and still one of our best sellers in terms of gardening farming books. So those two were major developments in the company. And, and as we saw, you know, how steadily these books sold over time. And in fact, you know, they sold more every year instead of less, which is the typical kind of publishing thing to happen. Um, the next, and we did another different book with Elliot, and then we did a revised edition of his book. But, it, you know, just having him on the list attracted other significant agricultural authors. Um, then the next sort of major development was the publishing of the Straw Bale House book, which back in the late 80s or early 90s was, again, totally unheard of that you would build a house with straw bales and it would be totally energy efficient and um, fireproof and low cost and beautiful. So, you know, that that book sold hundreds of thousands of copies and you probably still can only find probably, you know, I don't know, a hundred or so straw bale houses that have been built, but there were a lot of people who dreamed about building a straw bale house. And I think that idea of sort of handcrafting your house and being totally, uh, energy efficient in what you produced was very inspiring to a lot of people. So you can have one or two books, one or two or three books that kind of pay the bills and carry you along significantly. And those books go a long way to paying for all the new books that may not necessarily succeed. Okay. Um, I wanted to follow up on Elliot Coleman's book, The New Organic Grower. Um, at the time that was published, um, it was seen in the industry as a real innovation, both in subject matter and the pre presentation to the reader. Yeah, totally. And then he followed that with the Four Season Harvest, which talked a lot about how you could grow vegetables year round in unheated greenhouses. Well, that idea even now is, you know, sort of considered avant-garde but you know back then it was like totally unheard of so you know but but again in these circles that kind of information has a way of spreading and kind of uh being embraced by the people that are in the leading edge of thinking about what comes next so uh, you know in terms of our place in the agricultural movement i think we can we we want to maintain that we're sort of on the leading edge of new ideas and new experiments and new ways of thinking about agriculture so that really defines our publishing program 
Um, I, I want to ask about the employee-owned business. Uh, do you feel this model has been successful for Chelsea Green Publishing? And can you talk a little bit about how it ensures the mission and the vision will be preserved? Well, I would say we're still pretty new into it. Um, it doesn't, you know, becoming an ESOP doesn't necessarily change anything. I think that you have to work hard at building up a culture of um, ownership. And it's, that's not so easy to do. I think people, employees have a hard time wrapping their heads around the fact that being an owner is different than being just an employee. Um, and because it doesn't necessarily, and hasn't in Chelsea Green really changed the management structure, it's sometimes hard for people to understand what that ownership means. And it's treated legally as a retirement plan. So the shares of the company are held in trust on behalf of the employees in individual accounts um, and they can build up or decline over time based on the share price of the company. So the other issue is that as a pretty small company, it takes a lot of, it's, it's quite a complex thing to do and to manage. And so it kind of stretches our capacity on a, you know, just an administrative level to kind of make sure we're doing everything properly. There are a lot of legal and accounting complexities around it, which is why small companies often don't, I mean, most, most ESOPs are larger companies. So, I mean, we're very glad we did it, but we feel like we're just at the beginning stages and it's really gonna depend on how this works out over time. You mentioned that because the management structure didn't drastically change, it's created some difficulty for employees understanding the adoption of the ESOP. I was wondering if you feel there are any positive ways that this has further embedded the shared values of the company, and can you provide an example of that? Well, I think it, I think it has. I think it's just um, it's kind of a subtle thing um, in terms of you if you if you attract the right employees they want to stick around right because they're they're getting a good benefit they do feel as if they have a stake in the company and a stake in the company's future um i just think you know it takes a lot of work to maintain and grow that understanding and if you look at like our neighbor king arthur flower which is a much, much bigger company. They have whole committees and departments and specialized people who are devoted to making that happen. And so when you're in a very small company, it's much harder. You don't have the personnel to devote to it, you know, you, so you have to sort of, I'd say, let it evolve and try to um, sort of insert it into how you you know, how you talk about the company and uh, how you attract new people um, and, and your expectations of those uh, employees, too, over time. So uh, there's not one thing I could point to. I just feel like there is growing awareness that 
it's great to be an employee-owned company and um, and people are proud of what they're doing. On the other hand, sometimes you get the younger employees who don't really believe that anything that's put aside for their retirement will actually materialize. <laughs> and they also just can't kind of imagine, you know, 30 or 40 years in the future when they're going to be able to cash in on that. So, you know, you've got an age issue here that needs some work on. And and that's true. I think that's probably true for every employee-owned company. Oh, certainly. I, I would believe that might be true for any the any employee um anywhere yeah, that you as know. you as you mature in your career path, you you recognize the the benefits that you're accruing and what what you need to do to steward your or be a responsible steward of your own future it seems so far off when you're young <laughs> yeah it does um and um you know younger employees tend to have less cash they're more junior and so their attitude is well that sounds great but just give me the cash now because i i need it to pay my rent so you know there's there's that aspect too um, thinking about your time as the president and publisher of Chelsea Green, what has been one of the most fulfilling aspects of your role? Well, I think, you know, every time a new book rolls out that you feel has the potential to change the conversation or change the world, it's extremely uh, fulfilling and uh, satisfying. I mean, the thing about book publishing is you're not just making, you know, lots of things that are all the same each book is different and each author is different and so it creates a lot of um interesting relationships um and it calls for intense creative work to not only get the book edited and produced and published but out into the world and successfully marketed and uh where you feel like oh you know we did we did a good job on this book and now it's off and running and the author's happy and we're happy and we're affecting the culture and um you know it's, it's having an impact and conversely when you put a lot of time and energy into a book and for whatever reasons it doesn't work, it can be extremely frustrating. Um, but it's never boring because every book is different. Yeah, I mean, you, you are in a creative industry and so you have to remember that. And it attracts, it attracts an interesting group of people to, to, who are committed to doing that. Hi, Margo, this is Katie. For a while, it seemed like books were in decline with the rise in tablets and e-readers, but books seem to be making a comeback. In your professional opinion, why do you think books still matter? There's even the digital book has started to fall off, and I think there's a reason for that. It's people are just, you pick it up, you can turn the page, you read it, you have a relationship with it. It can be inspiring. It's just a, um, you know, I mean, you can't, it's hard to think of other things that have really changed. One thing, one, uh, 
product that has the potential to change the world. But books have done that. And you can, you know, you can you can talk about all the books that have changed the world in their own way. Um, so often completely unexpectedly. So that's what's exciting about being involved with publishing is you never quite know how that book is gonna affect the world, you know? And sometimes it's it's it surprises everyone. Um, other times it disappoints everyone, but you know, it's always, it's, it's not something that you totally control. Um, and so when it's done well, it's a very collaborative process. So, you know, the publisher should add to the product. So an author can turn in a manuscript, but we sh should be able to make it better. And um, when, when that works, it's great. It's like a play, you know, you, you can't do it just with a playwright or just with the director. Everyone has to collaborate to make a more, you know, to make a creative result. And with books, that's, that's what we do. And the bigger publishers don't necessarily do that anymore. They don't necessarily add value. That's why you see a lot of authors you know, just publishing their books by themselves, self-publishing. But it's very rare that a self-published book is as good as it could be. So, you know, you just, and timing is very important and luck is very important. So again, it's like you, you do these things that, you know, it could be the book sort of doesn't do that well for a few years and then boom, it starts to take off because suddenly you've hit the right time for the book to appear. Um, or sometimes it's, it's, it, it takes off right when you publish it. Um, and sometimes we joke a little bit about how we publish books too far ahead of their time. So they actually fail. And then 10 years later, it's probably a good time to do that book. <laughs> Definitely. And do you find that you often have return customers or people who really love the way Chelsea Green Publishing creates books or works with authors? Do you get feedback from the readers? Yeah, we do. And we also, when we go to conferences, we that's the that's a time where you hear people come up and say, I love your books. You know, I have all, all my books are Chelsea Green books and it's great. I mean, it's wonderful to hear that. Um, and, um, you know, similarly, if you have a very happy author and they express their, you know, their contentment and their loyalty to you by sticking around doing more books with you, you know, that's also very, encouraging. Um, when you go to conferences, are there many other direct competitors? It seems to me that the Chelsea Green model seems unique. And so I was wondering if there are other publishers following the model or overlapping on your um, niche that you've created. Uh, there are some similar publishers. I wouldn't say there's, we, we can, we're competitive with a few other small publishers, but I think, I don't, think they bring the mission to the forefront as much as we do. So I'd say everyone on staff is committed to the mission and, and, and involved in it, you know, often in terms of gardening or transition movement or sustainable business. So there, there is a commitment to the ideas behind books, which is pretty rare to find in publishing. It's not, there are other ones, but I, I think, 
I think because we're so niched, um, it's a, we're a little bit different. So you have a real advantage also for attracting employees that actually want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, at some point uh, I'm going to retire. I, I mean, I think my vision for the future is that it will carry on into the future with uh, a good mix of talented people who are going to be committed to um, developing it further. You know, possibly we might get more directly involved in creating, um, you know, courses, online courses, new different kinds of products related to the work we publish. So I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunities. Certainly our books are needed in the world, and I think we could be a little bit bigger and have a bigger impact. So I just, I see that hopefully continuing and flourishing and prospering in, in the future. But, you know, it all comes down to the people. So it's you can't really control it uh, once you've left. So, you know, you sort of have to let it go out and, and into the world on its own. Hi, Margo. This is Jennifer Joseph. Um, if there was one message you'd want to put out there for people either looking to make a change or who want to be a part of the movement and don't know what to do, what message would you give them or what would you tell them? Just do it. I mean, I think you just need to jump in. You can't, you can't plan it all out, you know. It depends what your sort of passion is around, whether it's, you know, starting a new business or being in business or being an activist. But you just have to find an organization that's doing it and jump in. And, you know, and if you can't find someone to hire you, you just have to start it yourself. It's easier than you think, even though it's really, really hard work. It's easier to get something going than you might think. You know, I mean, you're told probably in your schoolwork that you need to do a plan and you have to do a P&L and you have to, um, you know, have some money and you need to do this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, a lot of things get started at a very little, a small level, and then they grow. So. You know, if you've got a good idea, you should just follow it and see if you can make it work. I think sometimes young people think they have to get hired when, in fact, you don't. You don't really need to be hired. You just need to get going. And, you know, sometimes that means volunteering and then that works into a job. Sometimes it means just um, starting a small business. Um, you know, so I'm just, I'm, you know, you shouldn't be sort of done in by the barriers that seem to get erected. I think that goes back to what you were mentioning before in that people need to make their own way instead of trying to follow the status quo. How people are sometimes afraid to make a change and they just need to go out there on their own. Exactly. There are a lot of change organizations out there. And um, it's not impossible to get hired by one of them if that's what you want to do. You just have to be really persistent. Margot, thank you so very much for your time. I really appreciate your speaking with us today. You can learn more about Chelsea Green Publishing 
by visiting chelseagreen.com. Join us for the next Sustainable Business Fridays, where we'll be speaking with John Meyerson, co-executive producer of the television series Years of Living Dangerously. Bard MBA in Sustainability. Lead the change. Learn more at bard.edu. Thank you.